0: Brian. Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. It's Zach Schreiner and it's February 2021. And this month I've got a, a topic that I want to tackle with you all, I want to discuss. And if you put it into a statement form, it goes something like this. We should not be limiting our eCPR capabilities in favor of VV ECMO. Tricky topic. Lots to discuss. I brought somebody on that you all know, Brian Grunau, to help us tackle this topic. Brian, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me to participate in this discussion.
0: And for those of you who don't know Brian, he is a machine. He publishes. He is in the ECMO world. He's clinical as well. And Brian will offer us something that is great. He will be able to tell us about statistics. He will be able to tell us about uh, clinically what this means. But he also will will temper me, temper my enthusiasm for eCPR and maybe give us a little bit of a more balanced view when we come to this topic of should we be using eCPR in lieu of VV ECMO? And what I mean by this is, I mean, we all have limited resources, right? We only have a, num- a certain number of machines at any given hospital. And right now they're being sucked down by VV ECMO for COVID. All of our machines are being taken. And so is that the right decision? Is that the right thing? In a, when we only have a certain number of pumps, do we offer the most benefit to society by simply restricting ecpr and giving all of these machines to the vv patients. That is the topic that I want to discuss. But before we get there there's a couple things I want to I want to talk about. One, reanimate it's too bad we could not get this conference underway with all that's going on. We are having a small exclusive thing this spring, but in the fall we are hoping to be back in place running up conferences, having a great time, big parties in San Diego, so look to that. Also, book should be coming out any month now, first ECPR book should be fantastic. Brian is involved with that as well, so forward we to getting that out. Also, before we kind of dive into this question, there's been a couple papers that have come out recently, which I have thought have been really interesting. Uh, the most recent one was about from in Oslo, where they they did a great job of putting into place an ECPR program and. And looking at what happened, what happened when their cardiac arrests, survival, what happened to them once they implemented ECPR ECPR program? Brian, did you have a chance to take a look at that paper?
1: Yeah, I had a chance to read it through.
0: What are your thoughts on it?
1: Um, I, I love the study. Uh, I think it's a really excellent study. And they really hit the nail on the head in examining critical questions, as you say, with regards to the system-based benefit of an eCPR program and really how many cases are going to be affected and what the potential incremental benefit is. Uh, As you think I know, in terms of disclaimers, I've spent billions of hours trying to set up an eCPR program in Vancouver, and it's had uh, its trials and tribulations, that's for sure. So I'm definitely invested in it. However, as an additional disclaimer, I still am unsure about the true incremental benefit of eCPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, especially when it comes to the potential uh, detrimental effects of transporting patients to hospital with ongoing CPR. So, you know, in this study, they really dealt with both of those questions and looking at the trade-off between transporting patients and looking at the the effect of that and the potential additional effects of the eCPR treatment.
0: Yeah. So they took Oslo population of like 1.2 million and they set up this program which had inclusion criteria very similar to what most of us are doing they structured this and ultimately they found that the patients that that came in they just didn't do better because as Brian is alluding to potentially they are not getting as good of a resuscitation in transport as they would have had in the field is that a fair assessment
1: yeah i think so you know i think we should, probably just, we should probably talk with the study design just, just briefly first. Uh, and what they did is they had a before and after study uh, looking at the time period of 2014 to 15, and then comparing it to the time period 2016 to 19 in which they had an eCPR program implemented. Uh, and I guess it's important to note that that doesn't quite hit the COVID era. So uh, we don't have that clouding clouding the numbers. And really typically when we look at before and after designs, we consider them a lower quality of evidence. And this is largely because typically cardiac arrest outcomes and outcomes of any disease state are getting better over time because we're doing lots of different things to try and improve outcomes of patients. So at the end of the day, when we see a study that does before and after, we see there's better outcomes in the second time group, we say, oh, well, it could have been just because outcomes were improving over time due to other factors than the intervention. However, when we see a before and after study, that the outcomes are worse in the second time period, that really has to make us pause to think about, you know, whether this intervention actually has made things worse in this patient population. So they looked at uh, a number of different things. And one thing they did was they took the overall number of patients in their regions. And first they compared the outcomes of the time period number one, and then time period number two, and looked at the number of patients who survived and the number of patients who were transported uh, with ongoing CPR. And just looking at their systems, I think we can see right away that this is a very high performing system. They are seeing 15% of patients survive to 30 days uh, overall among their cardiac arrest outcomes, uh, which is an excellent metric in terms of cardiac arrest outcomes throughout the world. Uh, and we could also see that their rates of transporting patients with ongoing CPR historically is very low with less than five percent of cases transported to hospital. So they very are they are very much a stay and play type system uh, and achieving excellent outcomes at baseline
0: okay. so i'm going I'm going to take the counterpoint on that. Fifteen percent is still I mean, it's good for the world, but it's still pretty lousy. And when I when I looked at this study, one of the things that kind of came out to me after mulling over it a little bit is that very few patients actually got ECMO. So in four years of post implementation, they had 14 total ECMO patients. Which of course, if you're Yiannopoulos, you get that in you know four days. But uh, out there, I mean, that that is so low. And then of those patients that that they got ECMO, only 7% survived. So, you know, like one patient, one patient survived. Also of the people that came, that ultimately got to the ER only that were all ECPR qualified. Only 50% of those even had attempts at ECPR. So I'm a little skeptical of saying, I'm making the conclusion, which is that implementation of an ECPR program is deleterious to your outcomes. What it really says to me is that, If you don't get, if you don't have reasonable survival, and you don't actually do the intervention, then of course your outcomes are going to be worse. Is that a reasonable thing, Brian?
1: Yeah, and you brought up so many different things in what you just said, Zach. So many important aspects. I think in terms of their their baseline survival, uh, when you look at their their historical cohort of patients who are ECPR eligible, their survival was actually really high. Thirty day survival was forty four percent. Uh, and 100% of those had good neurological outcomes. So we can see that what they were doing previously, they were achieving really excellent outcomes already. And then they implemented eCPR program. And you can see, just as you mentioned, that so few patients actually were treated with eCPR, which demonstrates the really monumentous effort that it takes to set up a ECPR program over four years. They trained probably like dozens and dozens of people. Set up these protocols over a, over a a community of a million people, uh, and they treated seven people. So it really shows the the small number of of patients that are typically identified in these ECPR ECPR protocols. So when you look at the pre and post outcomes, you can see that the the number of people who got sustained ROSC in the historical group was sixty three percent versus 50% who had sustained ROSC in the eCPR era. Uh, And then you can see that among the people who did not have sustained ROSC in the eCPR era, only only about half of them actually were transported to hospital with with, uh, ongoing CPR for for the purpose of eCPR. And then only just over half of those actually were treated with ECMO. So it's hard to know exactly what happened to the individuals who were declared dead on scene among this group, but it's a quite a large uh, metropolitan area. so it's possible that these patients just got missed within their ecPR program. you know these are really, as you mentioned a needle in the haystack patients that have to be identified very quickly in the resuscitation effort, which is a marked departure in what these pre-hospital providers were doing typically. so it's possible that they just missed them or maybe they thought that they weren't appropriate even though they did fit the criteria. But you can see in the number that got sustained ROST, it does suggest that the pre-hospital resuscitation effort was impaired by the scoop and run changes in terms of the fact that a smaller proportion actually got ROSC uh, on scene. If you look at the number of people that actually got ECMO, uh, there were 26 that were transported to hospital for the purpose of ECMO, but only 14% actually got ECMO. And it looks like This is probably because of the requirement that they needed to have a cardiac arrest to ECMO interval of less than 60 minutes. So I think in spite of the fact that many of them got to hospital before an hour, which I think is a very successful metric for people who are running ECMO programs, if you can get people to hospital within an hour, you're doing pretty good. And they got most of them to hospital before an hour, but they actually wanted to get people on pump before an hour. So I think they actually ended care for people if they couldn't achieve that metric. Uh, which really is going to be a problem because the benefit to ECMO is going to—it has to be all in the ECMO, as you said. So if you don't actually put anyone on ECMO, then you're not going to have any benefit, and you're paying a price for the transport to hospital with ongoing CPR. So if you're paying that, paying that price, and you're not getting a benefit, then you're not going to see improved outcomes, obviously.
0: Okay, so I agree. There, there are a couple things were a bit confusing to me in this, that really high cessation of resuscitation in route was, was bizarre. And then the really high rates of ROSC in route as well uh, was a little bit bizarre. But for me, the take home of this study is that organization is paramount. You have to set up your system in the right way and you have to have, you have to be able to achieve the 30% survival that we're seeing for ECPR overall uh, you have to get that level to even even entertain the idea that you would have a better survival for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that there is probably an intersection though in terms of pre-hospital resuscitation quality and ECPR resuscitation quality. For example, if you're at a system where your ECPR system is totally slick, the Minnesota system, and you're cannulating people in six minutes you know, you're probably going to see benefits with eCPR and even greater benefits if your conventional resuscitation uh, performance metrics are not as good. But if you're in a system where your conventional resuscitation metrics are extremely good, and you're seeing highly successful outcomes with those procedures, you're going to have less patients who are left over that are viable for survival who are left over for eCPR and thus you may actually see not as good outcomes does that make sense
0: yeah that does make sense i still i still kind of worry about how the the conclusions of this paper were written and people are going to think that the nail here is the ECMO whereas i think the nail here is actually the organization that when we're setting up these programs that uh, we're not going to be great at the beginning. And Paris told us that as well, right? At the the very first time when they set up their program, they were having difficulties. Now, hopefully each of the programs have incremental knowledge and the ability to look at other places and look at well-organized systems and say, okay, we want to do it this way, not that way. But it, it, to me, the intervention uh, is being or implicated as far as the problem, whereas I think the real problem is the organization of the system.
1: Yeah, and I think, I think you're totally right uh, in terms of everything needs to be extremely slick. I think lots of people have found that simply implementing your existing ECMO program in terms of who's on call and what you have available uh, and trying to apply that to an eCPR program simply won't yield the right outcomes. Hmm. And really the centers that are having great outcomes are those that have people who are extremely dedicated to, to such a program and typically start with one person who does all the cases, as we've seen in Minnesota and also in Prague, where you know a very small number of people get extremely good and are very dedicated at it, and then maybe train others to do the same to obtain the same level of, deliver the same level of care. And I think this, you know, this might not be uh, intervention that is generalizable to all trained individuals. It might be, you know, something like heart transplants, where first cardiac surgeons would go and do fellowships in this and then bring it back to their site and then be able to implement such a specialized procedure. Uh, and that might be what needs to happen for something like ECPR as well where people go learn and train with, with the best of the best, and then they come back to their sites and then implement programs when they've learned. Because it seems like this is a highly specialized uh, technique in terms of right from ha- having high performance metrics for cannulation as, as in Minnesota with six minutes uh, that you know, are difficult to replicate in other studies without that same volume experience, all the way through the critical care phase uh, prognostication, uh, and rehabilitation. Uh, it seems like these are high resource intensive and um, treatments and required a large amount of experience to gain the outcomes that we're hoping for.
0: I really like how you said that. That was much better than, than how you said it. The idea that the training is everything, the training of the personnel that are involved, that is key. And, that, and Dimitri would say that as well. All right, I'm going to interject real quick here. So Brian and I, as happens with so many podcasts, the discussion after that we have the podcast is the most amazing part. And Brian brought up a really important point here, and that is, what would you do next? If you're Oslo, what do you do next? And his opinion is to go pre-hospital. That that alleviates the concerns about decreasing CPR quality, and therefore by Setting up an institutional program where you can go into the field and get these patients—that that would be the right course. I made the counter argument that maybe actually the first step that you should do is go and do the fellowship, like Brian suggested. Is have your cannulators be much more experienced, much more than just uh, you know a few cannulations here or there, but they get really good at it someplace else. And I really like how Brian said that. Again, the Oslo situation is amazing. They, they did so much work to set this up. Uh, and and so this is what's happening in so many different places. Like, how, what do you do next? And maybe the the first thing that you do next is that you improve the quality of your resuscitations, the quality of your cannulations, the quality of your inpatient ECMO programs. Or, as Brian suggested, maybe you alleviate the problems that are causing your decrease in survival. So this being the decrease in quality of Resuscitation in the pre-hospital setting. Either way, it's fascinating. Points. All right, back to the podcast. Okay, so cool study. Really amazing that Oslo w- was able to get all this off the ground. Uh, unfortunate that the outcomes were so dismal. But uh, man, it you know, props to them for for structuring everything that they did and and putting it all together. Uh, another trial that I saw this month that I thought was cool. I'm glad they did. Was from Paris, uh, Lionel. In, in, at all the people in there, they they published how their, their findings of this neurologic function that they use as one of their inclusion criteria. Did you happen to see that one, Brian?
1: No, I haven't looked at that one in, in detail yet.
0: So we have on this podcast a number of times talked about how they use pupillary constriction as one of their, their methods to, to include patients. So obviously, if someone's like grabbing the ET tube as you're doing chest compressions, well, they're neurologically there. Okay, I'm going to go full blast. But if their, if their eyes just, you know, change or gasping is the other thing that they brought up in this study is that kind of the three pronged neurologic uh, exams that they did uh, is that, does that mean anything? And in their study, it shows that it does. Uh, clearly the I'm grabbing the ET tube or what they defined as a uh, change of consciousness, I think is how they phrased it, which could be anything from kind of jaw rigidity um, to the, you know, speaking during, during chest compressions gave you about a 40% chance of survival. Whereas if you had as low as gasping, I think it was like 11, 11%, 11%, but these were still better, 22%, sorry, were, were better than, than if you didn't have those. And if you had all of them or any signs of life that you were statistically more likely to survive than if you did not. So cool thing, at least quantifying what, what Paris is doing as far as their inclusion criteria in their pre-hospital ECMO cases.
1: Are you using that at all with your eligibility criteria, Zach?
0: We aren't. That's not in the criteria. But, but clearly, if someone grabs the ET tube while I'm doing chest compressions, I am going to be much more aggressive about starting them on eCPR. Although 40, 40% is still pretty low. I was like, oh man, I, I would think if if I'm having that kind of uh, change of mental status that, uh, that that I'd be thinking more like the 80% survival range.
1: Yeah, I actually, back in um, the Euro Elso a few years ago, I asked Lionel in terms of what their actual cutoff was for looking at pupillary diameter for considering it uh, non-dilated because that's what the, the term they use reactive or non dilated pupils and he said it was more of a gestalt kind of thing looking at it because I was looking at how to implement such a criteria into our pathways so there is one study out of Asia that looked at this and they found a cutoff of six millimeters was to be the best to discriminate between a good and a bad outcome but I wanted to err more on the side of trying to find the winners so I pushed it down to five millimeters uh, and we actually made some little plastic pen cap uh, attachments that the paramedics could hold with them uh, that were exactly five millimeters. Mm -hmm. And they could use those to look at the patients to see whether their pupils were five millimeters or or less. And we use initial shockable rhythm as our uh, inclusion criteria. However, if they have signs of life and they're moving, or if they have a pupil diameter of five millimeters or less, then we'll include them even if they have non-shockable rhythms.
0: That's great. That's great. Yeah. I, in the the paper that they just wrote, they did not, they said it was a subjective thing. They did not quantify it. They did, I think, Yum made some reference to some study that did say that, hey, if you visually see the change, then that's consistent with a pupilometer or, or however they do it, however they can quantify that. All right, cool. So so two studies there. Now let's get to the real question, Brian. And the question or the, the statement that I have is that I think in the world that we are preferentially giving people VV ECMO when we really should be saving one of these pumps to do eCPR. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a really great question. And I think there's probably this is somewhat site specific. You know, we've seen huge variability in terms of outcomes for eCPR uh, within our cardiac arrest populations, whether that be out of hospital versus in hospital and, and huge variation between sites with the kind of outcomes that can be achieved through, through eCPR. So, you know, I think that your hypothesis that a ECMO machine should be re- reserved for eCPR cases is probably reasonable. And, and I would support that. But in terms of VV versus VA, it's definitely, a, a you know, a type of uh, economic analysis that would need to have to be done in terms of resource uh, utilization, in terms of in times of limited resource availability, especially during the COVID pandemic. I think that, um, you, you know, using ECMO for non-cardiac arrest patients is probably a bit more a bit more of a known quantity in terms of what you're going to get in terms of outcomes. Uh, it's not quite as emergent and a bit more organized. The data really isn't as isn't robust for either of those applications. So it'd be hard to compare them directly. However, I think that probably most people would say they would have more confidence in the ability to achieve uh, reliable outcomes with the non-cardiac arrest patients, whether it be for VV ECMO or or VA ECMO for cardiogenic shock.
0: Okay. So here's my counterpoint to that. Uh, and and I've been in these discussions before. And and I'm I'm really open to listeners who think differently or have thoughts because this is a this is a, a thought in my mind that is in process. So I may be completely wrong here. But a lot of people want to look and say, okay, the survival from COVID ARDS on ECMO is 50%, let's say. Uh, And the survival from eCPR is 30%. So clearly the ECMO, we should be using this for VV. When that's not the comparison. Uh, The comparison is what's the risk reduction as a result of the intervention? That's what I want to know. And that question, I agree with you, Brian, completely that it's really tough to assess. Mostly because both of these survival benefits are unknown. I mean, Eolia. Caesar trial. These are kind of what we're looking at for VVEC. when we have a, you know one paper, a couple of papers this year, I'm looking at a survival benefit for COVID ARDS, showing it's maybe similar to what we saw in EOLIA, but that that incremental benefit is very questionable, if any. So even if you take, let's say, from EOLIA that the survival benefit, if you look at it in the Highest light in favor of VV ECMO. You're saying maybe 11, percent an 11% uh, relative risk reduction in mortality with ECPR. Also difficult to assess. But let's take Yiannopoulos. Let's take our study if out of San Diego. We're talking about relative risk reductions of 20, maybe 30 in Yiannopoulos, Maybe 40% survival benefit. But for conservative safe, let's say it's about 20%. If you then also factor in this limited resource, like you said, Brian, where we only have a given number of pumps at any given time, then you also have to factor in how long are they using the resource? And so in VV ECMO, in the Olia trial, it was 15 days on average. In our study, and interestingly enough, I couldn't find the the, the time that Yanopoulos has had his patients on ECMO. He had one data point for his survival. I think it was 52 hours, but for all comers, he didn't have it. For ours, the average for survival and non-survival was just under a day. And so you take a survival benefit that's higher with eCPR, you take a resource utilization of one-fifteenth of what they had in in VV ECMO cases, and it's not terribly difficult to say, hey, this might actually be a significantly better thing for the population to keep a pump in favor of eCPR over VV ECMO.
1: Yeah, you make you make a compelling argument, Zach. Uh, and, you know, in terms of the uh, incremental survival, you know, for this discussion, we can leave the whole pre-hospital stay in play versus scoop and run thing behind uh, and just assume that everyone's making it to hospital with ongoing CPR. And then I agree that you know really the only chance of survival after you've had 40 45 minutes of refractory cpr is 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 ECMO for sure and i think that you're you're right in terms of looking at the resource implications in terms of the uh, effectiveness and the duration of care is important for that equation you know if if you're in a center where you're achieving 30 to 40% good neurological outcomes and each each ECMO run is only you know 7 to 10 days then you know, you probably can't top that with any intervention that you can provide with ECMO uh, across any patient group, because uh, you're taking someone who's dead and you're creating a survivor out of them, uh, which is a huge, which is a huge benefit. Uh, however, you know, in lots of as I mentioned, there's a huge va- variety, uh, variability in outcomes across ECPR performing centers. So, you know, in many centers, people are getting outcomes in the five to five to fifteen percent survival range, uh, and you know, two thirds of those uh, might be good neurological outcomes. So, in centers that aren't having quite the same success, the the balance in terms of uh, resource utilization outcomes might be a bit different than for the the other cases that you're mentioning.
0: So, I don't want to. Th- there's a couple other points that we need to bring up here before we compare apples to apples. But let's just ca- let's just take that worst case scenario that you just described: a five percent survival in a patient population that you've agreed has kind of failed everything else and has a, a individual chance of survival as let's say 1% for those patients. Is that reasonable? Totally. Yeah. So uh, and it's probably even less than that. So a 4% relative risk reduction, and we're saying 11% for VV ECMO. And then when you put the 15 days versus what we're using as like just over one day, you would still be in favor of eCPR.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's entirely possible, Zach, I haven't crunched the numbers. And I think you'd have to do like a cost benefit analysis. But, you know, you make a, um, you make a persuasive point that the the resource utilization might be, you know, might be tipped in the favor of the eCPR. Anyways, I know that a lot of centers in terms of the COVID uh, had, in terms of the COVID pandemic, in terms of, whether we were going to save the machines for VV ECMO. uh, We're also worried about the healthcare occupational risks to individuals with contracting, transmitting COVID to healthcare providers. You know, CPR was definitely a very worrisome thing to a lot of providers in the pre-hospital space, as well as the added risks of uh, putting individuals into an ambulance and doing CPR and airway procedures while en route in a small, small box. And then emergency department healthcare providers were also quite worried about these resuscitative procedures being done in terms of their occupational risks to developing COVID as well. So I think in terms of holding uh, ECPR protocols during the COVID pandemic, I think the occupational risks also played a role uh, in centers deciding to put their their programs on hold.
0: Mm, That is a great point, Brian. So Extrinsic to even the the crunching the numbers, we have to realize that in a COVID area era, that stay in play actually makes more sense anyway. Okay, so so I, I I agree this topic is muddy, and and I totally get how we got to this point. Right, you have three different hospitals that are all calling you saying. I have a patient here that needs VV ECMO. And you're like, no, 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 we only, we've used all our machines. And so the patient, or the, the patient that's there talking to you, hospitals calling you versus this possibility of an eCPR patient that comes in is much more appealing to, to take the known quantity. Uh, and it also has to play into how often are you going to get an eCPR patient? So if that eCPR patient doesn't come in for a month, then you've actually burned that resource for an entire month. So these calculations are definitely more complicated than what I just made it to be. But I do think that we, this discussion needs to be had at every, at every center that is resource limiting their ECMO machines as we are right now.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and you know that's definitely a, a rational discussion to have uh, in terms of how you're going to use your ECMO machines. I guess if you're in a setting where you're going to have your machines used 24/7 for VV ECMO if they're available, uh, then it makes it a lot more difficult. But in other cases where you where you might where you probably don't have 100% usage of your machines, you could just see what's what's available at the time uh, and make the decision. However, I totally agree with you that patients who are already in treatment relationships with physicians, definitely one feels more inclined to use the resources for those individuals, rather than an unknown quantity in the pre-hospital setting, where you can just basically make a policy to not bring those patients in, and then they never actually enter the hospital-based care system.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's a complicated thing. And then you also need to kind of look at quality adjusted life years afterward. I mean, the VV patients are a bit younger. I think the Eolia trial was 51 was the age on average. Uh, Yiannopoulos had 59 as his 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 cutoff. We I think ours was 55 as our average. Uh, so the longevity of life uh, for a 20 year old that gets COVID and now you want to have that 11% relative risk reduction that that's another factor in here so not easy decisions but uh, but in systems of care such as Dimitri where you know stopping his system would result in significant harm I and mean, he even just showed that in the arrest trial that they had to stop early because they ethically did not feel that allowing these people to have traditional ACLS uh was Right, that they that they felt bad about it. So, um, so difficult questions, but I think a lot of people that listen to this are in these positions right now. They are they are in the position where there's an assumption that we are going to stop our ECPR program as a result of our uh, significant VV ECMO use, and maybe that 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 discussion should should be a little bit more complicated, a little bit more. Um, uh, have a little more more involvement than simply saying we are not going to do this at all. We are going to save all these machines for our COVID-8 RDS.
1: Yeah, no, no, I totally agree that those are important discussions to have. And, you know, I think in terms of the occupational risk is probably things are going to get a bit easier now that most healthcare providers are are vaccinated. So that might clear up some of the additional priorities that cloud the discussion in terms of uh, whether ECPR program should be, functioning in the pandemic era.
0: Super cool. All right. Well, this is February. Brian, before we go, I just want to pick your brain because we are so lucky to have you here. What's going on in your life? What is interesting in you, in your mind, in the ECMO community in 2021?
1: Hmm. What's interesting in the ECMO community? Well, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of different things going on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the Prague Hyperinvasive Trial that the results publication should be coming up soon as they're pretty much done enrolling now, uh, which I think is going to be uh, a really interesting trial. Of course, we had the the landmark arrest trial that you already referred to already, which further confirmed the Minnesota uh, outstanding results in terms of their ECPR outcomes. The, I, find that, I think that the Prague trial is also going to add to that uh, because they're enrolling patients in the pre-hospital setting, which they have the roving uh, physicians in the pre-hospital setting doing on-scene resuscitation, and they were identifying cases at that time juncture and then randomizing them to the scoop and run versus quote-unquote in play systems. So I think we're going to see some interesting uh, results similar to the study that we talked about in terms of the trade-off between benefit with eCPR and the potential detrimental effect of uh interest transport. So I think that's going to be very interesting. I also think I also love this discussion about the interplay between the initial shockable rhythm versus the uh, signs of life uh, with CPR as the best inclusion criteria for defining your best ECMO candidates. And, you know, I think it might be a combination of the two, but I think further uh, evidence of how we can identify these cases uh, who have neurological viability is really, uh, really important. Uh, thirdly, I think that we have a lot to learn about our CPR quality and how to bring patients to hospital with ongoing CPR. And it's really, I don't know if you've, you've had the same questions, but it seems like some patients who we, we initiate ECMO on for eCPR, they look exactly the same as other patients that we initiate on eCPR in terms of their characteristics, Uh, but they have like markedly different outcomes. You might have one patient who it does amazing. It has a perfect neurological recovery, and another patient who's has a total neurological uh, devastation. And you wonder to yourself: these were treated by the same paramedics. They were the same age. They had the same comorbidities. Why are they so different in terms of their outcomes? And I wonder if there are differences in CPR quality in terms of CPR position, ways that we can measure whether we are actually giving effective CPR, and ways that we can modify this so that everyone gets good CPR and good perfusion to their brain during these, you know, one hour resuscitations versus others having terrible, uh, terrible outcomes. So I think we really need to push the needle on, on that in terms of how we can uh, deliver good perfusion to everyone with, with chest compressions.
0: Oh, those are three excellent things. I love the last one. I think the the contra. Contralateral to that, or whatever is But I can't believe someone actually survives after an hour of chest compression. So we need to find those people that survive and say, what went right here? How in the world did, did we continue to perfuse the brain for an entire hour and allow them to be neurologically intact? So super cool stuff. All right, Brian. Well, thank you. We are, it's such a treat to have you on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: it was a great discussion. Thanks for the invitation.
0: All right. ED ECMO, February. We're out.